Lots of our heroes have fallen in this season. A season of great challenge, great exposure. So how should we respond to the news of such falls and how should we relate to vocational ministers in this season without hardening our hearts or seeking to deconstruct the church as it is revealed in scripture? First Corinthians chapter 4, we're beginning at verse 1, held, holds a lot of wisdom on that. Let's read it together. First Corinthians 4 verses 1 to 5. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries of God. By the way, we're going to mainly focus on verse 1, so let me read this again. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Verse 2, now it is required that those who be given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time, but wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, it seems to the careful observer today that the servant of the Lord, and by that I mean a vocational minister or ministry, is evaluated with different criteria than Paul would have evaluated him in this epistle here. Servants of God are evaluated today under the criteria of those that are most successful, those who are the most influential, those perhaps who are the most gifted, and those who are the most effective in gospel ministry. Perhaps their ministry, you can think of anyone in between this little study, perhaps their ministry is, is weighed and either found wanting or valued by the following. The size of membership in their church, how many people there are in the pews, the academic ability they have, the degrees that they have, the degrees that they've earned or the degrees that they've bought. Can you believe that's a thing? Whether they've written a book, a pamphlet, a tract or a blog article that people like, whether the size of their social media following is large, whether they've been invited to speak at great conferences. Too often, this is the way that the service of God within the church is weighed and evaluated. But I want to say categorically, on the foundation of those five short verses we've read, that we have read together this morning, to evaluate God's servants in this way is totally wrong, according to Scripture. As God alone knows the hearts of people, and he alone can judge them, one day God will judge all leaders. I reference James 3.1. God says in his word in James 3.1, teachers will receive a stricter judgment. In Hebrews 13.17, it says that the church is to obey their leaders as people who will give an account to God for their care. Which one is more difficult? One day God will judge all leaders, and it says in verse 5, bringing all to light what is hidden in darkness and exposing the motives of the heart, not just the outward behavior or ministry fruit, but the motives of the heart. 
This will become very clear as we look into our study this morning. And what we'll find is this. God wants us as the New Testament church of Jesus Christ to recognize the New Testament gifts. Use that word intentionally. Gifts that are present within the ministers of Christ who work vocationally in the church. So we're to recognize these gifts that men and women have been given in the church Whatever that spiritual gift may be, whether it's apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, whatever gift mix they have, we're to recognize it, but we are to never fall into the error of exalting a man or a woman. That's the balance Paul is trying to walk in his teaching. A balance towards our heart, towards servants of Christ. But on the other hand, not to fall into the mistake the Corinthians were making, and that was to treat with contempt that which God had gifted them with. Paul gives the instruction that we are to regard servant of Christ in this way. It says this, let a man so account of us, and I use the King James Version for those of you who like the King James, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ. Now what do we mean by the word account? Because that's the way the Apostle Paul wants the Corinthians to learn to behave towards himself and other leaders listed earlier in the epistle. He wants them to account him and Apollos and Cephas and so on. So what does this word account mean? Well, quite literally it means, what do you suppose them to be? What do you suppose them to be? This word is also found in 2 Timothy 4. So I'm going to give you a bit like last week with temple, a few different renderings of it so we might land with a good understanding. The Apostle Paul tells every Christian in Corinth to think of ministers in this way. So what does 2 Timothy 4 say? Paul is talking about everyone in Asia forsaking him in the ministry. Can you you think about how Paul had a successful ministry but people abandoned him rejected him didn't like him churches rejected him when he was the pioneer happens a lot to apostles because they are difficult people to work with because they are to set the church in order that's their job and people don't like to be set in order they like things to be comfortable and as we read today we'll see an apostle in action dealing with the church as an apostle should what do we suppose them to be is what he's going to go on about in this chapter, but a different angle. In 2 Timothy 4, it says, at first answer, no one stood with me. But all men forsook me. I pray, and this is the Apostle Paul, I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. The word account is the phrase laid to their charge. In other words, when Paul is in our passage saying, This is how you ought to consider the servants of Christ. This is how you ought to put on their account your opinion of them. This is how you should treat them, think about them, ascribe to them. What are they? What do you suppose them to be? Is this making sense? Yeah? It's important, this. Just a side point. Have you, those of you who've been around ministry for a while, ever had anyone forsake you? A few few laughs. Jesus did. He said, are you all going to leave me now? And clearly the Apostle Paul did. We've just read that in 2 Timothy 4. But what I find is his mature response is quite telling in this passage. And I paused on it. I prayed on it. I thought about it. I ingested it. I liked it. The Apostle Paul prayed for those that had forsaken him. 
that it would not be laid to their account. God likes faithfulness, doesn't he? Faithfulness. Faithfulness is the belt of your loins. Faithfulness. Paul prayed for the ones who forsaken him. It's a bit like Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How mature is the Apostle Paul in this? We'd have been grumbling. The Apostle Paul was loving and praying for them. What a maturity that we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. So what do you charge the ministers to be? How do you regard them? What do you suppose them to be? The word is also used in 1 Corinthians 13 when it says, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. The word thinks is the same word here as account, suppose them to be laid to their charge. So what do you think of the servants of Christ, the vocational ministers? That's what the Apostle Paul's saying. This is how I would like you to think of the servants of Christ. He's going to tell you what he wants you to think. This is what I want you to suppose them to be. We'll get to that. Forgive me for going slow, but it's important you understand the word of God. Paul, right at the very beginning of this chapter, is asking us to tread a middle ground. We must understand that. What is that? Let me repeat again. It's not to exalt man or woman in ministry, but it's not to belittle people who are given as gifts to the church. You can, the people oscillate between two extremes usually in life, and it's usually good to hit the ball along the fairway, to go down the middle lane. And Paul says, don't exalt people, don't belittle them when they're gifted to the church. I hope God willing by the end of this message that we'll all be treading that middle ground, not to exalt preachers or theologians, or pastors, or ministers, or evangelists, or worship leaders, but on the other side of the corn, not, not to go home on a Sunday and have roast pasta for dinner. There's a middle ground, not to treat the ministers of Christ as they stand in the pulpit as some kind of performance, some television-like activity where you're watching and you're giving your marks out of ten. Ever been there? Seven! <laughs> This is how the people received Ezekiel's ministry. See, you might, so some of you might be like, I don't like the way he goes through this so detailed. So other people say, I love the way he drills down deep. You can't win. <laughs> I know that. But, I, you know, after 30 plus years of preaching, I've lost the care to please people. I just teach the truth. I don't care what people think most of the time, unless my flesh is manifest in insecurity. This is how Ezekiel was treated. Do you remember Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 32? The people who were listening to him in his great prophecies to Judah said he was one who sang, who spoke like he sang a great and beautiful song. Sounds a bit like George Whitfield for those who've read about his ministry. Oh, they loved his preaching. And they're evaluating him like that. This is not how we should regard ministers and preferences a lot of the church are preference orientated and as we'll find when we go down this that is immature christianity that's baby christianity to be preference orientated i believe within our sphere of christianity today and you've got to understand what i say by that charismatic pentecostal evangelical churches there are too many connoisseurs of preaching of the word of God and not enough people whose conversation and life exhibits the transformation wrought by that preaching. So rather than going home and saying, 
what did the Lord say to you through that message? We'll go home and say whether we liked it or not. That's immaturity. So let's start and see how the, how the Apostle Paul instructs us to hold the servant of Christ in our thinking. He says this, and I want you to notice three words. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those who are entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. How, how we ought to regard us, how we ought to understand the word servants, and also the idea of those who are entrusted with the mysteries of God. Now we need to ask the question first, what does he mean by us? Who is the Apostle Paul speaking about when he uses that plural pronoun us? The Apostle Paul in chapter 1 verse 12 is attacking and dealing with divisiveness and factionalism in the church, which is rooted in immaturity. And he's saying, what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas, that's Peter. And still another says, I follow Christ. You see, these people in the Corinthian church were driven by personality. There were some who liked the Apostle Paul because he was a Jewish lawyer, had a legalistic mind. See, in the book of Romans, for example, he could dissect everything and make it incredibly laser-like. His theological and theoretical arguments that he presented. And God used him in that way with his analytical mind. He was literally, scholars say, a genius. Some people love that stuff. Even today in this church, they'd fall over themselves to hear that kind of rhetoric, that kind of teaching, that kind of laser-like understanding of the Bible. Other people couldn't stand it. And they'd pass out virtually in the congregation listening to it. Then there are others in the church they liked Apollos because he had flowery eloquence, a Whitfield or someone like that. He could really get them going and speak and everyone was with him. They followed Apollos because they liked his way. Then there were others who followed Cephas. That was Peter, of course. And they were probably the humble, ordinary, poor folk who liked the rough, gruff fisherman speaking because he taught their language and he was down to earth. The word of God was taught his way and it connected. And then there were others. They were so high and mighty, a bit like exclusive hyper-spiritual people that they wouldn't follow any man. No man was good enough for that party. They'd follow Christ in Christ alone. But what Paul is trying to say here when he's using the word us, he's saying no matter what person you've been following, no matter what tribe you're into, I want the church at Corinth to regard this, that they minister on account and for all of us. So we saw a collective of the ministers together as being important. All of us are ministers of Christ. Now, as I said earlier, to think anywhere else is humanistic and it's carnal, it's immature. Paul nails this carnality in a very brief way. And let me say again, personality worship or preferring one leader to another within the church of Jesus, no matter who that personality is, is carnality. Chapter 3, verse 4 says, For while one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Is his question. Are you not immature? Are you not fleshly? It's carnality. That's why he goes on in verse 21 and says, Therefore let no man glory in men. It's not for you to glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, the world or life or death or the things present, the things to come, all are yours. He sees them all in one bucket. All as one, all part of Christ's body on the earth, all belonging to 
the church, a collective of gifts for the body, not optional tribal leaders. Does this make sense? This way of thinking, when we are tribal, when we have preferences, can only lead to division. And it leads to divisiveness and it's rooted in immaturity. Now, one thing that I want you to notice before we move on is that the, the Apostle Paul is very, very gracious in this passage because he grounds himself and Peter with another person. He includes another person in that list who isn't an apostle. He puts the one I've mentioned earlier, he puts Apollos in with Peter and Paul. Now what's amazing about that is Apollos wasn't an apostle. He was just a speaker who Priscilla and Aquila had trained more thoroughly. But here's the point. They recognized the gifting on his life. And the Apostle Paul was humble enough to bring together Apollos, Peter, and himself in one bucket. And he said, listen, recognize the gift. Recognize the gift, but don't exalt the man. There was a humility in there, what he's saying. Now, with the Apostle Paul, as I've said, there was a belittling of the gift on his life. In, in verse 9 of this chapter, chapter 4, it says, For it seemed to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise. He's being a bit sarcastic here. Can a leader be sarcastic? I don't, I don't advocate it, but he is here. What do you do? It's in the word of God. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answered kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. There were those even within the church at Corinth who were belittling and disregarding the gift of God in the Apostle Paul. If you don't believe this, turn to chapter 9, after you can listen to it, verse 1. Paul has to tackle those who are doubting his apostleship. He said, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? They were doubting that as well. Are you not the results of my work in the Lord? They were even doubting perhaps that he was the instigator of their own salvation. Can you imagine that, being a planter of a church, and then the church that you planted reject you? In verse 3, it says, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. There was those in the church of Corinth who were doubting that the apostle Paul was God's man. And they were actually sitting in the judgment seat, the beam, judging Paul. What do we mean by judging? They were not regarding, accounting, thinking as God did about the person. Now, 2 Corinthians 10. We find that this great sin comes to fruition in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, verse 8. He brought to the point of having to boast about his credentials. I think there's a possibility here that the Apostle Paul was so broken by his treatment of the church he'd founded that his insecurity was manifest, can't prove it, and that he was almost in overdrive to be accepted by the ones who'd rejected him. This is what I see. The, see the humanity of Paul in this letter. 
So even if I boast, he has to talk about his credentials, that's when you're really in a bad place. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Some people should realize that what we are in our letters, when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Do you see almost the threat of the Apostle Paul? Do you see that? It's in the scriptures. What do we make of it? I think there's a guy who is on the back foot. Paul's posturing appears to be a man who is fighting for the dignity and honor to do what God had wired him to do, owing to the Corinthians' rejection of him. They were doubting his very authority to teach the word of God and to lead the church of Christ, and they failed to recognize that Paul was the gift of God to him. As I've referenced Ephesians 4, now to some God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. When we use the word gift, Paul was a gift to them, but he was a rejected gift. And what we're trying to get down the line of here is to treat with balance, not to exalt a person, but neither to despise, reject or belittle a person. Now, it's a hard balance to strike. Now, let me go on away from the word us to the word servants. Paul wants them to account or think or see him or suppose him to be a servant. What do you mean by servant? What do you mean by that, Paul, in verse 1 of chapter 4 in 1 Corinthians? There are, there are different words in the New Testament for servant. We get one from where we call people deacons in the church, diakinos. That's where we get the word deacon from, servant. We also get a, a Greek word for public servant or civil servant. The one we're using here, if we can go to slide two... When Paul wants to consider, wants the people to consider him like this, he wants them to consider him as, and Apollos and Cephas, as under rowers. He said, when you think about, how do you suppose me to be? How do you think of me? What do you consider me to be? What do you consider Apollos to be? How do you think of us? He uses the collective, because we are the gift to you, the church. He uses the word huperates, which is an underrower. Maybe you've seen the film Jason and the Argonauts. Yes. And you know all about these great longboats. Sometimes there were two tiers in a longboat. You can see them on the picture on the screen. People on the top and the bottom with long... People on the top had longer oars, and the people on the bottom have shorter oars. It was... Wise to do that. But the point is this, that on these longboats, there was always a master. Or as you would see it in rowing today, there was always a cox. And they would tell the rowers where to sit on the boat. They would tell the rowers where to row, how to row, and in what direction to row. And the point Paul is making in this teaching that I've labored with you is this is how you ought to consider me. The Apostle Paul says, I'm just an underrower. Now, they would have known what huperatis means. It is to be completely in submission to the director of another. The word 
later became to know, to, to understand, you know, you've heard of etymology, it's the study of where words came from, what they became to mean. The way this word evolved, it became something to mean any subordinate person that was acting directly under the authority of another person's instructions and direction. What the Apostle Paul is trying to teach the church at Corinth is that he is Christ's underower. And the interesting thing about that is he's saying to the church, I don't listen to the bang of your drum. I don't listen to the sound of your voice. I don't care what you think of me, Corinthian church, because my captain, my cox is Jesus Christ. And I listen to him and I move with him as he gives me instruction so that the church moves forward and really I'm cutting out your voice and I'm moving forward in God because Jesus Christ is my Lord. Does this make sense? I'm an underower. And the humility of the man to not lord it where he had power gifts and anointing and greatness and genius. He came amongst them and he said, I'm merely a servant. I'm an underower and I only listen to Jesus. And this is where the church of Jesus Christ has gone off at a tangent through the last few millennia. Because when a gift comes on a person, the man or the woman is exalted because of the gift. This is why I often get children and newly saved on the streets or in public or in churches doing miracles. I want to teach the church that any spiritual endowment came because of God's grace, not because of spiritual merit. I've been raised in a charismatic church for the last 40 plus years of my life, and I've seen many gifted people but what impresses me most is intimacy with Jesus Christ. I, 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 I could show you hundreds of people on my contact list who have seen virtually every miracle that exists. I know lots of people have seen the dead raised. But what is most important is intimacy. And this is what the Apostle Paul is advocating as a minister who parades, I am an underower. I am under the direction of the cox's voice. I operate according to the beat of his drum. Nobody else's voice matters. Now, the servant of Christ in local church, the minister of God, the vocational ministers, if we could learn that, to only listen to the voice of God, and if the people under their care, could only listen to the voice of God. We, we would have no schisms in the church. The problem is we have schisms because we move away from the voice. We move away from the voice of God in the word of God. We move away from the voice of God in the spirit of God. And if we move back into that rhythm again of the beat of Jesus' drum, the church comes into order. Can we all say amen to that? It's the truth.
We need to be directed by God and God alone. I, I uh, prayed long and hard whether to address this, but can we have the next slide? For the sake of the tape, I'm not going to mention any names. But the church has lost confidence in leadership. And what we do is we put leadership all in one bucket and mistrust and doubt is sown all the way through the church of Jesus. And what it does is it leads to a deconstruction of New Testament Christianity, particularly the church. God assigns leaders to, to churches and he gives them a gift in and a ministry. And let me make it clear, if a person is found out of abuse, public sin, they are to be treated, first of all, if it's abuse criminally, according to the laws of the land. And secondly, if it's sin, they need dealing with the church discipline, according to the elders of the local church. Are you, in, are you with me? The elders are a safeguard to vocational ministers in a church. A very important job, eldership. Very important job. But if there's nothing exposed, you should not lump all ministers in with the same bucket. Amen? Who, who are you in you judge, the Bible says, particularly if you've seen nothing, heard nothing? What's really important at the end of our passage is the Apostle Paul says, I don't even judge myself, I'll leave it until Jesus comes back. What loaded in that, in that statement is, Jesus has promised in his word to deal with everything. Amen? Is that something to be feared? Of course it is. And so, the response of the church, the church should never be a, a safe harbor for abusers. They should never be a safe harbor for those who flout the law. And if a person is found in repeated and persistent sin that goes against ministry behavior, they should be dealt with by the elders of the church. Are we clear? Otherwise, we're to leave the character of the person to God. Does this make sense? Amen. Now, just before you think you get off, and it's all about vocational ministers, Paul says the word entrusted. It's so... Who are these servants, these underrowers? What are they entrusted to be? Can we go off this slide as well? Because it's not going to do the soul any good. The word steward is the Greek word oikonomos. It's where you get the word economics from. Oikonomos. So home economics, do you remember that at school? <laughs> no, no. Cookery, what, what, was, what was it? Woodwork. <laughs> you wouldn't make a good cake with woodwork. Home economics, national economics, international economics. comes to the word oikonomos. Oikos means house. Nomos is law. 
or arrangement. Campbell Morgan, you remember Campbell Morgan? One of the greatest Bible expositors, it was Greg Haslam, R.T. Kendall, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Campbell Morgan. Give me a wave if you knew Greg. We do, we love Greg. There's another mystery. Set tangent thought, why do such good people go? Get back on track, Steve. <laughs> Oikonomos is literally, according to Campbell Morgan, like a housewife. Forgive me, that's a modernist man. <laughs> He's not thinking 21st century. But he was saying that the person who cares for, feeds, warms, protects, is a good example of somebody who arranges the home, oikonomos, a certain way so that people will flourish. The housewife's responsible for feeding the family. Housewife, forgive me, 20th century, is responsible for keeping the family comfortable keeping the family tidy, warming them up when they're cold. And you couldn't get a better word for the servant of Christ or the steward is the word we're looking at as those who will keep the family tidy, warm them up when they're cold, feed them. A minister of the gospel must feed the flock with the word of God. They're to keep the flock comfortable in a positive sense. They're to keep them tidy. They're to help them when they get lukewarm and discouraged and downhearted. This is the arrangement of steward. Jesus uses the word steward in Luke's gospel, chapter 12 and 16. And you see it in Galatians 4 as well. Paul talks about how children are put under a governor. That's the word steward again, somebody who has a charge with something for someone. Paul commends Erastus in Romans 16. He was actually treasurer of the city. Imagine being the treasurer of a city and having someone in the church in charge of city finances. That's quite a job. And Paul said he was commended for being a steward of the money. That is his job. But he is the same word again, steward oikonomos. He's the one who is in, in charge of arranging the house finances for the city. So when we see the word steward, we look through and it talks about himself as a vocational minister as being a steward. And of course representing Christ and charged with serving the church for Christ. But elsewhere, it talks about that same word related to eldership. We've spoken about the importance of eldership in this message. Titus 1 verse 7 says, For a bishop or an overseer must be blameless as the steward of God. So the one given a charge for care, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, not a striker. I love this. Forgive me for using this translation. <laughs> not given to filthy lucre. <laughs> Just love that phrase. Elders in the meeting this morning or listen online, you have a stewardship before God in the ex execution of the will of God. Not the will of man, but the will of God before God. And let me tell you that along with me, we will all give an answer to God about our stewardship. And I know I have a great bunch of guys in our elders team who serve you well with humility and love. Now, everybody loves giving a boot to the elders, so this is where it becomes your turn. Ouch. Maybe, maybe you don't love giving a boot to the elders. First Peter talks about you lot as believers. Forgive me for coupling you all into one stable. And it says in verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others 
as God's stewards of the grace of God in its various forms. Now listen, this none of us can get off the hook before God. We're all stewards. We might be stewards with different degrees of responsibility, but we're all required to obey God. And in a sense, that picture of the cocks beating the drum is where your head needs to be as well. Directed by God, serving God, and charged for God as a Christian to serve one another as stewards of the various graces of God in all its forms. Now, let me close with this thought. I've got so much more to teach you on this, but I'll save you and spare you. There's a difficult passage in Matthew 7, okay? And this is one that we don't understand. But it still needs visiting because there are things in there we can understand. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. And again, it's in the passage where Jesus is talking at the beginning of chapter 7 about judging others. But chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says these difficult phrases. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to the Lord, 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 did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. Now, Stephen, why have you landed on that? Do you want to depress us? I think there's some important teaching in this, particularly for Pentecostals and Charismatics. What do you see, and I'm asking you the question, as the key teaching in that passage? Absolutely, Jeanette. And Jeanette whispered, intimacy. Jesus said, one phrase, depart from me, I never knew you. That's about enjoying God. Think about it, right, guys, and maybe girls, I don't know. There's a proliferation of a sexualized society. In the same teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, whoever looks with lust for a woman has committed adultery with her in his heart. And then Jesus said, gouge your eyes out. He's not literally talking about self-mutilation. He's saying it's better for you to enter life maimed than to enter into destruction with your body intact. He's talking about a rigid moral self-discipline to stay holy. Now, it is a side point. I don't want to get down the teaching of sexualization of society. But there is a place where Jesus calls the true bride to holiness. To live a clean life, privately as well as publicly. And if Jesus, his own words are saying, that could get you in serious trouble, live clean, perhaps we should take Christ at his words and take holiness a bit more seriously. What are you saying, Pastor, that holiness will sustain and maintain my salvation? And apart from the holiness of God... Um, I'll not not know salvation. Well, no, we lean entirely on the finished work of the cross. And I advocate once saved, always saved teaching. But let me say something very clearly to you. I don't know. 
there are others in the church that don't teach that. And we need to walk the middle ground always that says what is the priority for the Christian and the Christian minister that we've been speaking about today. The priority of the Christian minister and the Christian generally is to know the Lord. Depart from me, I never knew you. But Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did many mighty wonders in your name. Look at the sons of Sceva. They couldn't cast out demons. Who's casting out the demons? How does that even work? Jesus said, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness is not being under the beat of the cox's drum. Lawlessness is not being connected to the divine. It's, it's um, antinomos, against law. You, you turn your back from the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You turn away from the influence of the one called alongside to help, the, the comforter, the parakletos. You, 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 you allow, as it says in Hebrews, your conscience to be seared by the deceitfulness of sin. You, you say, it's okay, God knows my heart, it covers everything. I'm allowed to, it's grace. And, the, and I'm, I'm not advocating a saved and lost this. What I'm saying to you, what is key? What can I be concrete about? That the Lord's lifestyle for the believer and the minister of Christ is intimacy. It is to turn from sin. It is to turn to God. It is to embrace intimacy with the Holy Spirit and to be led by the Spirit. For Paul said in, in Romans, these are the children of God who are led by the Spirit of God. There are ministers, I know, who are so intimate with the Lord, they will sometimes pray for people, sometimes they'll not pray for people. Did you see that in Jesus' ministry? Don't, they'll be looking at confused. Sometimes the Holy Spirit said, don't pray. I went round to house once, let me give you an illustration. It's the only time it's ever happened, the Lord told me not to pray for a person. You don't know them, so it's okay. And I was so shocked, and the Lord forbade me to pray for them. It's like, what are you kidding? Come on, Lord, I love everyone. What are you? Don't pray for them. And then it came out that this individual was sleeping with a married man in his home as his mistress and was completely unrepentant and then swept into the church I was leading and stole one of my young men away into a lifestyle of sin with her. The Lord knows everything, sees everything, knows the hearts of people. Why is that? It's a bit of a weird illustration. What I'm talking about is be a one-track Christian. Be a Christian that cares about one thing, the beat of the cox's drum, the voice of the master, slave master, whatever you want to call it. Be a God pleaser, not a people pleaser. Because one day, as Paul's already said in his teaching, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then it says at the end of the passage read, and then everyone will get their due praise from God. 